Scott had a surgery on his um, wrist, I believe, and um, uh, he's played way too much pickleball, I guess, and he finally got the operation. And uh, after two services of the right hand of fellowship, I think I might need a hand surgery as well. So. But it's great to be with you. It's an honor to be your new dishwasher. And uh, I feel very installed, Dub- doubly installed. So um, our, our text this morning is Genesis 17. It's the sort of filthy text you give to a dishwasher, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, and you will see the word circumcision quite a bit in this chapter. In fact, you will see it 10 times, uh, but there's another C word in here, which you will see 13 times, and that's the word covenant. And so as we read Genesis 17, uh, pay attention to what God says, not only about uh, circumcision, but about his covenant. So let's look at Genesis 17. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, so if you want to keep a Bible open and uh, track along, you can, but I'm just going to read through verse 19 this morning. So let's read. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is the word of the Lord. 
It's nice to start a sermon with humor, especially when you have a topic as uh, potentially uncomfortable as circumcision. So I spent a lot of time trying to write a couple jokes. I should have spent more time praying, but I, I, I tried to write some jokes. And uh, I, I had the foresight to test them out on some friends beforehand. And the general wisdom I received was, you know, a sermon might not be the, the best place. And uh, then they told me, and your jokes aren't funny anyway. So, so all I say this morning as we begin is that following the counsel of my peers, I will do my best and I will try not to cut up too much. Thank you. You installed me. It's, it's, it's too late now. So it's, it's good to laugh. And uh, that's part of the point today because Isaac's name means he laughs. And uh, the big idea in the text is this, that God gives us joy. God does want you to be happy forever. God gives us joy through the gospel. So three points today about the gospel. The gospel calls us into a covenant. The gospel cuts and the gospel commissions us. So three C's, the gospel calls, cuts, and commissions. So first, the gospel calls us into a covenant. Two weeks ago, Scott preached uh, from Genesis 15, and he preached about how grace was always God's plan. And it's a beautiful sermon, and it's a beautiful point. And I just want to say yes and amen and reiterate that for a moment. You see, God has always saved his people the same way, by grace through faith. God did not have one plan for the Old Testament and then one plan for the New Testament. Things do change and, and grow and evolve over time, but people have always been saved by grace through faith. And, and in the New Testament, Paul shows us that. He says that Abraham is the man of faith. In fact, here's what Paul says in Galatians 3, 8 through 9. Paul says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, Abraham is the father of our faith. And to be the father of our faith, he has to share our faith. And Paul is saying that the gospel that we believe to be saved, that you're saved by grace through faith, was preached to Abraham. And this is a really important point because Paul does not just throw around the word gospel very lightly. In fact, in the book of Galatians, he's very, very clear what the gospel is. In chapter one, he says, I'm astonished that you're deserting the gospel. There is no other gospel, just one gospel. And if, if I or an angel from heaven, if anyone should preach a different gospel, then let them be damned. And then two chapters later, he says, the gospel was preached to Abraham. So as we study these ancient patriarchs, it's easy to feel like as modern Westerners, we can't really relate to ancient Easterners, but we actually have so much more in common. We have the gospel in common. It's the same gospel. So the first thing we see about the gospel today is that the gospel calls. And I, don't, I can't remember uh, who said the quote, but it's a beautiful quote that God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. Amen. God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. And Abraham needed that because he was not very qualified. Uh, he lived in the very site, probably, where the Tower of Babel was, was built. He worshipped the wrong gods. 
He uh, and his wife could not get pregnant. And yet he is the man that God called and said, I want you to worship me and be the father of this faith and you will have many nations come from you. And Abraham, from that point on, even then, doesn't do a great job uh, being a man of faith at times. And in Genesis 12, we saw how he was a coward and a liar. And he actually sold his wife to Pharaoh's harem. Uh, I'd never seen it this way before, but it, you know, Scott pointed out, basically Abraham sex trafficked his wife in order to save himself. It's a pretty horrible thing to do. But he wasn't only trading his wife, he was essentially handing over the promise that God made to him, which was going to happen through his wife. Pretty faithless. In chapter 16, just last week, we saw that uh, Sarah, his wife, had this plan. Let's force God's hand and make this, this, this uh, offspring come, come quicker. Why don't you sleep with my servant, my Egyptian servant, Hagar? And Abram did that. He went along with this bad plan to essentially force God's hand. In chapter 16 left us, it says in verse, chapter 16, verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And then verse one of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. So in, in, in this short space, space of time on the page, 13 years have just passed which is longer, by the way, than everything else that we've seen Abram do. Uh, It was 11 years from Genesis 12 to Genesis 16, but it's 13 years, 13 long years that perhaps God is silent. Maybe maybe Abram is living with this, uh, the, the, the feeling of the failure of this mistake. And I think it's important to see that this is the kind of person God calls. Not only is Abram not qualified, but he's really... He's really botched it a couple times. And uh, if you're like me, then maybe you've made some mistakes. Maybe you've made some big mistakes. Or maybe you've been the victim of the wrongs of others. And maybe you've been hardened for a long time to God or to church. It might, it might have been a very big step of faith for you, for you to even come this morning. And what I want you to see is that if that's anything like you, then, then Abraham can relate. And you're the exact kind of person that God calls and that God blesses. So God calls him. And he says this, he says, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. So uh, what's interesting here is in, in chapter 15, we saw God make a covenant with Abram. Remember they, they cut the animals and the flaming torch, it went between the pieces. So we kind of naturally wonder, well, why, why is God making his covenant again. You know, did it not take the first time? Does he have to redo it? Is he making a second covenant? These are all fair questions. In the Hebrew, it's a little bit more transparent what's happening because the usual word to to make a covenant in the ancient uh, Hebrew was cut, karath or something like that, or karat, like a diamond carrot, C-A-R-A-T. So when you made a covenant in the ancient world, you would cut a covenant, literally. Um, And that's that's the word that's used at the, the beginning of a covenant. You cut a covenant. However, the word used here in chapter 17, verse 2, is not karath, but is nathan, which means to give, uh, like the name Nathan. It's where the English name Nathan comes from. It's God gives. And so uh, in, in chapter 17, verse 2, God is not saying, I'm going to cut, I'm going to make a brand new covenant with you. What he's actually saying is, I'm going to give you the covenant now. 
today. Today's the day. Here's a, a modern example. It's sort of like buying a house. Um, if you buy a house, there, there are a couple stages to it. First, you put an offer in and you go under contract, right? And then uh, you, when you do that, you make an offer, but you also put down your earnest deposit, which is essentially saying, here's how much I'm in. And uh, if you bought a house in the last two years, you put down an egregious earnest deposit, I'm sure. But you put down your earnest deposit, but you still don't have the house yet. You have the house on the day when you close and you show up and you get the keys and what a joyous day that is. So essentially what we're seeing here is in Genesis 15, God and Abram went under contract and God gives this massive earnest deposit. He says, myself, remember it's, it's God who walks between the pieces, not Abram. He says, I will make this happen. And yet it's 13 years later on this day that God says, we're closing. Today's day we close. But Abram was not buying a house, not yet. Uh, what he was getting was a covenant. So it's, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, every metaphor breaks down at, at some point. So if we want to understand what's going on here, we have to see that the gospel calls us, but it does two things. It calls us away from something, okay, just like Abram. The gospel called him away from a pagan culture, from worshiping pagan gods, uh, from past mistakes even. He was called away from something, but he was called to something specifically. He was called to a covenant. So we need to understand uh, what covenants are because the gospel is a covenant, the gospel of grace. As Scott said a few weeks ago, uh, the covenant of grace is one big covenant. Marguerite's been having trouble sleeping lately. So uh, I said, hey, a few days ago, can I try out part of my sermon on you? I want to see how, how this goes. And, um, and a few minutes in, she's like, it's really working, you know? And she said, could you, just, could you just go a little bit longer? And uh, literally about five minutes later, she was asleep. So, but here's the part I was trying to say to her. You see, the covenant of grace... Uh, and I do this a great danger, hoping not to lose too many of you, but the covenant of grace, okay, uh, is one big covenant, okay, but it's also six littler covenants. God makes six covenants throughout the Bible that are, that are very major. The covenant with Adam, with Noah, here with Abraham, with Moses, with David, and then with Jesus, okay? The new covenant is what Jesus uh, calls it. And you would be wrong if you thought that these six covenants were, uh, were, were replacing each other because they're not. They're actually building upon each other. They're actually growing into something. Imagine, imagine you, you planted a black walnut tree like Scott, okay? And imagine as that tree was growing from a seed to a sprout to a, a larger plant to a fully grown plant to a, a black walnut. Imagine you took a, a snapshot of each of those six stages, or if you don't like walnuts, make it an apple tree, okay? But you, you have these six different images. And if you came from a different planet, you knew nothing about plants, you would say, those are all different. And they are. There, is, there, are, there are unique peculiarities about them. However, you know, because you're an earthling, that it's one plant, <laughs> right? It's, it's just one organism that's growing, okay? And so it is with God's covenant of grace, it's, it's the one covenant of grace that starts in the Old Testament and goes everlasting, as God says to Abraham here, everlasting into the New Testament. And that's why people in the Old Testament and people are in the New Testament are saved the same way. If it's the same covenant of grace, it's the same gospel. So uh, Marguerite was asleep by the time I said that. But, um, so we have to understand 
covenants, and we have to understand two dimensions. One dimension is what I just told you. One dimension of the covenant is that it's a plan. It's kind of like an organism. It's like a a program that it's God's redemptive idea acted out in history to save people for himself. That's one way to think of the covenant. However, the other way to think of the covenant, the other dimension to it is that it's a relationship. A covenant is a particular kind of relationship. And the closest parallel is, is a marriage. You see, because a covenant is a very intimate relationship. It's a relationship that requires loyalty, fierce loyalty, like no other human relationship. And it's a relationship that fundamentally changes your identity. And that's why I think it's so significant here that both Abraham and Sarah get a new name. They're given a new name because this covenant of grace is so fundamental, not only to them being plugged into God's plan, but also to who they are. Covenant is a relationship. And and this helps to explain something that you may be wondering. If you look at verse two, God says, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. Okay, and then God also says uh, later, he says in verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. And you might wonder, well, if it's God's covenant of grace and it's free and it's unmerited, then why does it seem like there are conditions to it? Why, why, Why does Abraham have to, walk and be blameless? And why does he have to keep the covenant and obey? And this is getting to the heart of the covenant is a relationship. Yes, it's free. Yes, it's God's grace, but he's not giving you like a hamburger. You know, he's not giving you an object. He's giving you a relationship with him. And hamburgers don't change you, right? But relationships do. Here's an example. Okay. So when I married my wife, um, it was, it was free, it was free to fall in love and it was free to propose to her. Yeah, the ring costs some money in weddings. I know life is expensive, but just the simple love, all right? The relationship itself, love is free, okay? And so are kids, okay? Kids are free, you know? They, uh, they come, don't they? <laughs> and you, you don't have to pay to get them. You really shouldn't, right? So um, unless you're adopting, which is wonderful and it's worth the cost, I get. But what I'm trying to say is this, that, okay, relationships are free, but they change everything. Certain types of relationships might be free, but they will change everything. And you have to live differently as a married man than you would as a single man, or you're a bum, okay? And you have to live differently as a father or a mother than you did before, because relationships change everything, even though they're free, and so it is with God's covenant. Yes, it's free. Of course it's free. But try telling Abraham there's no cost to it when God says, go circumcise yourself, okay? So God is calling you away from something, but he's calling you to something. He's calling you to a covenant. And this is what we see actually in our very next verse. The gospel calls, but the gospel also cuts. Look at this language. I I think it's really fascinating, this language in verse uh, 10. God said to Abram, you will keep my covenant. And then he says in verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me, you and your offspring after you, Every male among you shall be circumcised. He's saying, this is my covenant. Circumcision is my covenant. It doesn't just represent my covenant. It is my covenant. And then look at verse 11. He says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Uh, so, that, so that raises the question, well, is, it, uh, is circumcision the covenant 
Or is it a sign of the covenant? Well, which is it? And the answer here, of course, is yes. What do you do with circumcision? Well, circumcision is a sacrament. It's an Old Testament sacrament. Like the New Testament sacraments of baptism and and the Lord's Supper, circumcision is an Old Testament sacrament. And John Calvin writes this about sacraments. He says, a sacrament is a visible word, a visible word. So there are two parts to it. There's There's this visible, tangible component to a covenant, but then there's also the word of promise that comes with it. And thank goodness that we have nerdy Presbyterians like the Westminster Confession of Faith people in the 1600s who really wanted to figure this thing out because they help explain it a little bit. Here's what Westminster Confession of Faith 7.2 says. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. So let me try to explain that. Every every sacrament has these two parts, the sign and the thing signified. But there's this union between the two so that you can talk of one just as easily as you talk of the other. That's why Peter says in one of his epistles, baptism saves you. Because a sacrament, here's, here's an example for you. A sacrament is kind of like a check. Imagine I had the funds and the generosity to hand each of you a $10,000 check. Okay, now you get that check. You just got it. Do you feel richer? You should, okay? It won't bounce, I promise, okay, in this, in this illustration. You should feel richer. You just got a $10,000 check. However, really, you haven't gotten $10,000 yet. You, you've just gotten a piece of paper, and yet the, the, the paper, the, the visible thing, is inseparable from the thing it signifies. It should be. This is, this is kind of what circumcision is like. So circumcision is a sign. And if we want to understand why it's so important to God, why he would go out of his way to say, this is my covenant. I'm going to give you all of this, Abraham. There's one thing I want you to do. Circumcision. If we want to understand that, then we need to figure out why circumcision is a sign and what it's a sign of. And so I'm going to try to do this quickly, but circumcision is a sign for four reasons, because it marks, it teaches, it promises, and it commands, okay? It marks, teaches, promises, and commands, really quickly. Circumcision marks. This makes it a sign. At its most basic level, uh, circumcision is a sign or a mark of who is in the covenant. And God makes his covenant with Abraham, with his offspring, and in this instance, with his entire household. Everyone who is there, a male uh, who is born in his house or bought with his money, everyone uh, there, God is saying, these are the people, these are the covenant people. And this is similar to the New Testament sacrament of baptism, which marks those who are in the covenant community, which consists of believers and their children because all six of these covenants are made with believers and their children. And so uh, circumcision is what we would call a, a sacrament of union. It's a sacrament that joins you to the covenant community. It joins you to the people of God. And, and if it's met with saving faith, it joins you to God himself. It's a sacrament of union, the same way baptism joins you to the people of God, the visible church, and when it's met with faith later in your life, like circumcision, it joins you to God himself in Christ. 
And in case you're curious, the Lord's Supper uh, is rooted in Passover, which are both sacramental signs of communion. You see, each of those are a gospel meal that's meant to proclaim the, the gospel that God has redeemed us. In the Old Testament and Passover, it was speaking of the Exodus. And in the New Testament, we proclaim the Lord's body and blood on the cross because Christ is our Passover lamb who was slain for us, you see. So it's one covenant of grace. This is why Presbyterians uh, think this way. Circumcision is a mark. Uh, but it's not only a mark, it's a lesson. Circumcision teaches something. There, there's something in the very nature of circumcision, the way it's done, that's meant to illustrate something, to prove a point. The same way with baptism, we use water. And the reason we use water is because water cleans, water cleanses. The reason we pour it or sprinkle it or immerse people in it is we're showing, showing people that the Holy Spirit poured upon people, cleanses them, washes them from sin. In the same way, the very act of circumcision is telling us something about the gospel. And it's telling us this, that mankind is born with a problem, born by default with a problem in his flesh. His flesh is the problem, the uncleanness of his flesh. He's born actually in need of a life-saving surgery because look at what he says in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off. So you're born and you have two choices, be cut or be cut off. So uh, the, the, the very act of circumcision is trying to teach us something. And just like baptism... It's, it's a visible word. The, the message is pointing us to a deeper spiritual reality. We don't believe that just baptizing a baby saves them. We believe that it points them as a sign to the fact that they need to place their faith in Christ so they can be regenerated and washed. In the same way, circumcision was always pointing to a deeper spiritual reality. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You see, the issue is not only our flesh, but our hearts. And this is an Old Testament idea, not a New Testament idea only. Physical circumcision is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There needs to be a deeper circumcision. And that's why circumcision not only marks and teaches, but it also promises something. And we talked about this a little bit last, uh, uh, in the last sermon I preached, where we talked about how circumcision uh, is a picture of the gospel because there needed to be a son of Abraham had to be the son of Abraham who would come, who would be cut, who would bleed on behalf of his people to reverse the curse and to crush the head of the serpent. But the Old Testament makes another promise that clarifies this further in Deuteronomy 30, verse six. It says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. It's always been God's plan, you see, that a son of Abraham would come who would be cut and who would bleed, but also that God himself would be the one to circumcise our heart. In both of these promises, you can see where I'm going, are fulfilled in Christ. You see, on the cross, Jesus is the son of Adam. He's the son of Abraham, but he's more. He is the son of God. And Jesus, because he's the son of Abraham, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was cut and he bled, but he did more. On the cross, Jesus poured out his blood for our sins. Peter says in the New Testament, by his wounds, you've been healed. The gospel is that we can be baptized because Jesus 
was circumcised. And this is the very language that Paul uses in Colossians. He's explaining, he's explaining the gospel to these, these Gentiles. And Paul and the apostles are teaching, you don't need to be circumcised anymore because Jesus has been circumcised. Jesus is your circumcision. Here's what Paul says in Colossians 2.11. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. When were you circumcised? You were circumcised having been buried with him in baptism. You see, so the New Testament connects the dots for us. Paul connects the dots for us. The reason we baptize now and we do not circumcise is because circumcision was a bloody sign pointing forward to the cross of Christ. And now baptism is a sign reflecting back on it that Christ can wash away our sins. So circumcision uh, not only is a mark, it not only uh, is a lesson to teach us something, it's not only a promise that Jesus would come, but get this, it's also a command. It's interesting that Paul in that same letter of Colossians, right after he says, you've been circumcised in Christ by the putting off of the body of the flesh, Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And the Greek is literally put to death your members that are on the earth, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You see, Jesus came to remove your punishment, but not your repentance. He came to command us to repent, and the knife of God must cut away every idol from our hearts. And here's how you know the gospel's working in your life when the gospel's cutting in your life. The gospel must cut away every idol, not only from our flesh, but from our hearts. And God, you know how when you're, you know how when you're married, your, your spouse can say things that no one else can say, and they're true because they see you all the time, so they hurt more when they're negative. You know, they're, they're just, they have access to parts of you that others don't. God puts circumcision in a very private place. He has access to every part of us, even into our hearts. And that means his authority extends everywhere. The gospel cuts. The gospel calls, the gospel cuts. But here's one more wonderful thing the gospel does. It commissions. It commissions us. You see, God is cutting us for a purpose, okay? He, uh, and I'm, let me clarify real quick. Jesus took care of, of, of your penalty for sin. That's justification, Right? You don't have to improve your life to be forgiven for sins. You improve your life because you have been forgiven for sins. That's called sanctification, the mortification of the flesh, as we call it. But the purpose for this is not just so that we feel good about ourselves, not just so that we can, we can rest in, in, in the wonderful promises we've been given, but it's actually meant to drive us. It's meant to, 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 to commission us. Look at verse uh, 22 and 23. I didn't read this earlier, but here's what happens. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So God goes up. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. That very day. So parents, this is why Abraham was a miracle worker because that very day he got his teenage son to be circumcised with him. Only an act of God could make such a thing happen. (laughs) So 
Abraham goes, and this promise is not something that just can be private for him. It's a public promise. Abraham has to go, think about it, back to his house, his whole tribe, and he has to tell them something kind of ridiculous, right? Which is this 99-year-old man whose name uh, once meant uh, exalted father, now means father of a multitude. He's like, God gave me a new name, guys, father of a multitude. And uh, really great news. Uh, It's going to work. Sarah and I are going to have a baby. And I'm really excited to tell you about it. Uh, let's all have a, a surgery. <laughs> what do you say? We, we, we got to get this thing uh, done. It's kind of silly. I mean, I, I can't imagine what that would have been like. I don't know what small act of faith God's going to call you to this week. It's not going to really match up to what <laughs> Abraham had to do. He goes to them with this news, and it's kind of foolish, but so is the gospel. So is our gospel. That's what Paul says. He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Because the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. We're commissioned with a kind of of silly gospel. And it's, I, I say that with full reverence, that, that we have a gospel that is apparently foolish to the world. There's a, there's a great book. It's called What is the Gospel? It was written by Greg Gilbert. It's a great little book. And he's trying to, he's trying to get down to what does the church say the gospel is? And what, what is the real gospel message? How do we understand it? And he's kind of coming after people who try to make the gospel look cool or relevant to people. And he says this, we want the world to accept the gospel, not laugh at it, Right? But really, we should just face it. The message of the cross is going to sound like nonsense to the people around us. It's going to make us Christians sound like fools, and it is most certainly going to undermine our attempts to relate to non-Christians and to prove to them that we're just as cool and harmless as the next guy. Christians can always get the world to think they are cool right up to the moment they start talking about being saved by a crucified man. And that's where coolness evaporates no matter how carefully you've cultivated it. Some of us, like me, were never cool to begin with. It's not an idol I have to worry about. It might be for you. But there's something cooler than coolness. There's something better than being relevant, and it's called having joy. And you know what? Joy's better because it's actually more magnetic. It's actually more attractive. And what I love about this story is the joy that drives Abraham. What is it that drives him, that fuels him, (laughs) <laughs> to, to, to go on this crazy mission to circumcise within 24 hours every single male among him. It's his joy. Look with me uh, really quickly at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And what's important to see here is that Abraham is not being uh, sinful in his laughter. He's not disbelieving God. We know from Romans 4 that uh, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's Romans 4.20. Abraham has faith. That's why he's on his face. He's worshiping God, but he's laughing. Unlike Sarah, who in the next chapter laughs and she gets rebuked by God, Abraham doesn't get rebuked. 
because he has a holy laughter. He's laughing for two reasons. He's laughing because he's astonished, probably, that this could be happening, that Sarah is going to bear him a child. But he's also laughing with joy because he's getting what he wants more than anything in the world, the promise of God. God is telling Abraham this, and here's what I love about this text. God says, you're gonna name your son. That's right, it's good that you're laughing. Your son's name will be, he laughs. God is saying to Abraham, laughter, Abraham, is more important than you know. Laughter is in your future, literally. You will have more joy than you will be able to contain in your body. It will cause you to double over, laughing on the ground. And that's why I think when Abraham goes to his, his family, I don't, I don't think he's sheepish. I think he's probably laughing. Guys, you're not gonna believe what I'm gonna make us do, <laughs> right? Because here's why the gospel goes forth. The gospel goes forth when Christians are filled with so much joy that they can't help but share. That's how we get the gospel to people. And we have every reason to laugh, to laugh with Abraham. I'll give you two reasons and we'll close here. One reason we have to laugh is because the gospel is hilarious. The gospel is hilarious, <clears throat> think about it. When, when you feel like you're not worthy or something, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to find your value in your job or a relationship that you either have or you don't have, uh, the way that you look or how much money you have or whatever the silly things that we think give us value, all the while, the God of the galaxy who made everything, the most important being in existence, who existed before existence, he says to you, you're so valuable. I died for you. I gave my son for you. It's hilarious that God would trade himself for me. Little old me, little old you. It's got to be a joke. <laughs> You'll get it on the ride home. How could this happen? It is hilarious. It's rich. And it puts us in our place and reminds us how much God loves us, how great he is. But the second reason it's good to laugh is this, because it's good practice for heaven. God is making a world. He's making a paradise for us. He, this promise to Abraham that you'll have a place, the land of Canaan, that's fulfilled when heaven comes to earth. We will live forever in a paradise of laughter. And so as we close this morning, I just want to read to you, I think, the happiest song ever written. It's called Joyful, Joyful, We Adore You. It was written to Ode for Joy, uh, which was a poem, and it was, it was set to the music of, of Bach's Ode to Joy, uh, which was the last uh, piece of music he ever wrote, and some people think uh, the greatest. Don't worry, I won't sing, I'll just read for you. But as I read it, uh, I consider this uh, a prayer coming from our hearts. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for this great gospel, good tidings, good news of great joy that you loved us enough not only to enter into our world to be found in the form of a human like us, to live a life like we live, but to trade yourself for us, to give yourself on the cross to save us so that we could have happiness forever. 
I just pray, God, for myself and for this church that we could be a people that are marked by this happiness, that that happiness could be contagious. God, that we could reach people with the gospel, that you would commission us, that you would give us opportunities to share what seems like foolishness to the world, but really is the power of God to save the gospel. We pray it now in Jesus' name, amen.